Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. If we haven't met before, my name is Brad Cheney, one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us this morning, you know, thanks for braving the snow and um, making it out. But um, we are in John, as I said, John 3, the most famous verse of the New Testament, the most famous verse in the Bible. We discover, uh, we meet a man by the name of Nicodemus, which uh, is a Greek name. It means victorious people, which is undoubtedly what his parents hoped for the children of Israel. Nicodemus was a powerful and undoubtedly wealthy Jew, perhaps one of the richest men in Jerusalem at the time. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which uh, that's the Jewish ruling council. The closest parallel for us would be the Supreme Court, so a a man of great stature and significance. He was also a Pharisee, and Phariseeism, it it was really a back-to-the-Bible reform movement and Judaism and in Jesus' time, it was gaining tremendous popular support among the people. And, you know, the Pharisees, we think of them almost entirely negatively because they're always, the, they're couched as the enemies in the gospel. But you know, the Pharisees end up being the reformers of, of later Judaism. And there were a group of Pharisees who were, in fact, interested in Jesus. You know, men who loved God, men who loved the Torah, uh, men who were open to dialogue and conversation with Christ, and Nicodemus is representative of them. Uh, we have to also appreciate that these were men of, of tremendous devotion. I mean, Nicodemus, more than likely, he had entirely memorized or almost entirely memorized the first five books of the Bible in Hebrew. I mean, men whose devotion would put every one of us to shame. And he's who come, he who comes uh, to Jesus. And I, I have a bunch of comments I want to make as we read this really important text. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, that is the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Maybe you've heard it claimed before that the reason Nicodemus came to Jesus at night was because uh, he was you know, embarrassed to, or afraid to associate with Jesus in public um, you know, in, the, in the daytime. Um, I think that's, and, and I think that's actually even maybe put on the front of the bulletin, I think it's probably mistaken because you know, John's gospel is a gospel of, of tremendous symbolism and darkness and light are, are symbolically, I mean, they, they're symbols throughout the gospel. I mean, most likely the reason Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night is because he is, as the dialogue will show us, in a place of, he's spiritually in the dark. He's in the darkness. And he needs the light of Christ to help him see you know, the riches of the gospel. It's, it's most likely not for lack of courage because we get to the very end of John's gospel. And uh, if you recall, Nicodemus is one of the men who goes to Pontius Pilate after Jesus has been crucified and asks for the body of Jesus. I mean, I've, I've likened that in the past to you know, going to Darth Vader and asking for the body of Luke Skywalker. I, truly a courageous thing to do. And this is not a man who's lacking in courage. It is a man who's lacking in spiritual insight. Verse 3. <clears throat> in reply, Jesus declared, Amen, amen is the actual formula, but it gets translated, I tell you the truth, 
No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You know, in the media, you'll oftentimes hear a, a reference to born-again Christians. Ever heard that before? And it's usually not a compliment. <laughs> um, what does it mean to be, uh, is it a born-again Christian as is in the media, like this extreme person? Well, well no. Um, he goes on, or John Nicodemus replies, well, how, how can a man be born when he is old? And you get Nicodemus asked, Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. I guess there are two options here. Option A, Nicodemus is a dim-witted literalist who thinks Jesus is really talking about going back into the birth canal of our, our mothers. Or B, the better option, that Nicodemus rec- recognizes Jesus is using a metaphor. Jesus is always using metaphors. And he responds with a metaphor in kind. Um, To be born again is to be a person who gets a fresh start. Um, And that's what Nicodemus thinks. He thinks that Jesus is going too far. Uh, A fresh start? To start over? Uh, How is that even possible? To claim a new birth? To enjoy a new beginning? I mean, isn't that the thing of fairy tales? Uh, How is that even possible? And for him, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, how can he be expected to get a new beginning. You know, to be a born-again Christian is someone who is, who has in Christ received a new beginning. And so that's where his, his metaphorical incredulousness um, is directed. Jesus answers in verse 5, Amen, amen, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, that is natural, natural, you know, human birth. Uh, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You may or may not be, uh, realize this, but verse 5 right there, if you look at it again, is one of the most controversial verses in um, all of the Bible. Uh, the most common, go through church history, the most common interpretation of verse 5 is that it teaches baptismal regeneration which is a fancy way of saying that Christian baptism is the way that you are born again of the Spirit. Um, Search church history, most common interpretation. Baptism is necessary for salvation precisely because it is the way that people are born again. But you reply to me, um, what, what about the thief on the cross? Jesus said to the thief on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. And the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. So was he not saved? Well, those who hold to baptismal regeneration, uh, they, they have to introduce exceptions, of course, for cases such as that one. And so they speak then of a baptism of desire. While the thief on the cross... Uh, he never had the opportunity to be baptized. Nevertheless, uh, he wanted it in his heart. Or, or if he hadn't even known about Christian baptism, he, he, he would have wanted to have been baptized. And so, you know, they make those kinds of exceptions. If you never had the chance to be baptized, um, then you, you're saved by your baptism of desire. Uh, I think that's a, you know, a, a mistaken interpretation. Another tortured interpretation that you sometimes hear is that the born of water here refers to the amniotic fluid of the placenta from which you know, we, 
we all come. And so Jesus is just reiterating the very next verse, that which is born of, of flesh is flesh. Everybody's born of the amniotic fluid from our mothers, but one must still experience this um, spiritual birth. And there's no way that Jesus is talking about that here. I think the key is later on in verse 11, he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel. You are, you're a bona fide teacher and you should know these things. What I am talking about, you shouldn't know about. Now, at this point in the story, Christian baptism hasn't even been introduced. Would it be really fair of Jesus to chide Nicodemus for not knowing about Christian baptism if it hasn't yet occurred? I mean, that's a fairly anachronistic (laughs) treatment of it. What I suspect is going on, um, and this is not the most common interpretation, but here's what I think. I think that Jesus is drawing upon the stories of the Exodus. And Israel... Israel had undoubtedly been born of water. Hadn't she? She had been born of the waters of the Red Sea. She was given new life, like true life at that moment. And, you know, you must be born of water in Israel to be, to be part of Israel. But, but the prophet spoke of a time when the Spirit would come and there would, he would give to Israel a future uh, new birth. By the power of the Spirit. And you know, that's always showing up in the prophetic works. If you want to check out a verse, look up Ezekiel 35, verse 25 and following, and and you will see it. Israel, you Israel, you must be born of water and you must be born of Spirit by, by believing in me. That is the fresh start that the teacher of Israel, uh, kind of Israelite par excellence, Nicodemus and the whole rest of the people have to, uh, have to make. That's the fresh start. Lengthy explanation, but I felt like that kind of was important. <clears throat> Verse 7, Jesus continues, You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And here we have a word play because the Greek word for wind and the Greek word for spirit is pneuma and is, is the same thing. Pneuma is spirit, pneuma is wind. Same thing is it true in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for wind, spirit is ruah. The wind, the pneuma, blows wherever it pleases. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone that is born with the spirit. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, I mean, kind of like the wind. I mean, nobody can predict where the wind is going to go. Um, nobody would have ever predicted that this ragtag bunch of followers, you know, fishermen and tax collectors, etc., that, that they would, who have, uh, who have congregated around Jesus, that they would be Israel's new beginning. Um, you know, that the world's new beginning. Nobody would have ever imagined that the wind would blow there, but with the wind, you can't control it. Uh, yell at the wind, uh, curse at the wind. Does that help anything? <laughs> no, you can't control it. And the spirit wind is so unpredictable and it has very unpredictably fallen upon this man and these men and women who are surrounding him. Again, verse nine, Nicodemus is incredulous. How can this be? He asks, you are the teach Israel's teacher, the teacher of Israel, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Amen, amen, I tell you the truth. 
We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people, and here he's referring to Israel, you do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. Well, then how then will you believe if I have spoken of heavenly things? Your Bibles don't exactly reflect this, but in, uh, it's, it's always really hard in John's gospel to know when Jesus' quotations end and when John's sermonizing began. Uh, there are no quotation marks in Greek, and so it's kind of left up to the English, to the interpreter, the translator. My guess is that Jesus' quote ends at verse 12, and John's sermon begins at 13, and we read, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. For just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's only begotten son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen, so, 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 sorry, 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 so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, Father, so much for your blessed word. Open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that these scriptures would be to us eternal life, joy, and peace. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, John 3 has been called, uh, as it says on the front of your bulletin, the most famous conversation in the Bible. It contains Jesus' most famous quote. Uh, ask anyone on the street to quote, uh, quote the Bible, to quote at least one verse of the Bible. Presumably, they'll at least be able to paraphrase John 3.16. Um, I thought that was interesting. In 2011, a Texas mechanic even offered free, free oil changes to anyone who, who could recite it. One wonders how many did, did he end up uh, giving away for free. We're familiar with John 3.16. What we're not familiar with uh, are the verses, the verses that immediately proceed and immediately follow John 3.16. So I thought it'd be fun at least to look at those with you today. Um, simple outline, verses prior, <laughs> verses after, and then conclude with the love of God is found in John 3.16. Maybe you were wondering earlier in the service when I had the choir uh, do the Michael Card song, like what is this connected to? Well, It's connected to verse 14, and it's connected to the incident we read about in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. The children of Israel are making their way through the desert, and they complain 
They complain, oh God, why did you drag us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? All we have to eat is this this manna, (laughs) um, a resin-like substance which could be used for flour and baking bread. And we read about the manna. The manna is, is fairly sweet. I mean, whatever they would you know, put, construct with it, it would have been like, like Hawaiian bread, like sweet bread. It would have been quite tasty. But they begin to complain uh, against God and about this fool Moses. And into the camp come venomous snakes. Um, snakes that bite you and you develop a raging fever accompanied by insatiable thirst. And, and finally, you're, you're out of your mind and you die. There's a clue, though, what's going on. Um, it happens to be in the Hebrew. Uh, the people of Israel have bread from heaven. The people of Israel are free from slavery. The people of Israel have a mediator, Moses. The people of Israel have God. He's there in the camp. Look, his presence is there in the camp. And yet they are still full of spiritual discontentment and they still rebel against God. And the Hebrew word here, this is the clue, for, for snakes is fiery serpents. Fiery serpents come into the camp. And, and there we have, I think we understand what's going on now. Because in the garden, our, our parents, Adam and Eve, they had all the same stuff. They had bread from heaven. They had everything they needed to live by. They had daily provision of food, daily access to God, until a serpent comes and says, hey, it's not good enough. You don't have enough. You need more. This isn't fair. God isn't treating you right. Until a fiery serpent bites them. And so the serpent in the garden, he poisons our parents with spiritual discontentment to the point that access access even to God, like to be with God, to be with God is not enough. And to eat the food of God is not enough for them. And that is why when God goes to judge his people Israel, um, he does it in this way. To give them, you know, a window into reality, to give them a lesson, a lesson, a lesson that we can all relate to, that you two have been, you two have been bitten by a fiery serpent. You too have poison in your veins. And if my commitment to you to be your God and to supply bread from heaven is not enough for you, then frankly, frankly, nothing will be. Absolutely nothing. That's a message that like all of humanity can relate to, can't it? Like no GPA is enough. No job success is enough. No cute boyfriend, cute girlfriend is enough. Like if this poison... And it is, in fact, the poison that courses through everybody's veins. If this poison is inside of you, nothing is enough. It's an ancient commentary on how spiritually discontent we are as humanity. Back to Numbers 21, we read, The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned when we spoke out against God and against you. Pray to God and ask him to take these snakes from us. So... Moses, the mediator, prays for the people, and God said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a flagpole, and whoever is bitten and looks at it will live. So Moses makes a snake of copper, copper, reddish, fiery, a 
a fiery snake and he puts it on top of a pole and anyone who is bitten by a snake and then looks at the copper snake on a pole lives. Such a strange way of introducing anti-venom to a population, isn't it? And it's kind of interesting. You, go, you look through um, Judaism after that event, everybody's wondering why? Like, why a snake on a pole? Um, why, like, why didn't God create some miraculous herb that grows up in, in the desert and they, you know, they, um, they, they crush it and make a topical ointment? You know, why, of all the bizarre ways to give people medicine, why did, why is it, and there's not even a great answer in Judaism until this moment that John comes in verse 14 and he tells us why, why this happened. For just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You know, lifted up, um, stretched out, and lifted up were the two most common metaphors for crucifixion in the ancient world. So must the Son of Man be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So two quick um, observations. Number one, the snake on a pole is a picture of a curse. For the snakes were sent against the people as as a curse. And so we read about Jesus and his crucifixion. In Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. That's exactly what he says. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And so it is, you know, it's quite remarkable that in becoming like the snake, the son of God becoming like the snake, he was the embodiment of our curse uh, uh, and of our sin. And in becoming sin and in becoming curse for us, that is the way that he took the curse away from us and healed us. Like, if that doesn't strike you as um, the foolishness of the cross, I I don't know what will. Secondly, another thing that this teaches us is is simply the simplicity of faith. The simplicity of faith. I mean, what do you have to do to be saved? All you got to do is look. Look and live. Look and live. Just look up to the pole on the hill. Look and live. Granted, it's a monstrosity. Yeah. But if you look at that monstrous thing on the hill, look and live. It begs the question, why would any child of Israel um, fail to look and live? The only reasons I could come up with is, um, is maybe they didn't realize they were bit until it was too late. Um, you know, you're in the desert at night. You run into bushes all the time. You get scraped by cactuses. You, you cut your legs on rocks. Maybe they didn't know it was a snake bite. Maybe it was a snake bite at night. And uh, they didn't know until the body goes numb and paralyzed. And then after they are completely out of their minds and sensible, then it's likely too late to look. But all you got to... Isn't it interesting, this is the metaphor God gives for the way to be saved. is just simply to, to look and live. All you got to do is look. Um, 
Charles Spurgeon, the great English pastor, he was saved. He tells the story of his conversion. It was, he was a young man. It was January. He's in London. The year was 1850. He was out walking to church that morning, uh, and a great snowstorm hits, much greater than the one we have today. Uh, but it hit so hard that he just decided to turn into the next church that he could find in order to get out of the snow. And he, he, it turns out that he, he's in a primitive Methodist chapel. He's in there, and there are 15 people inside. Everybody else hadn't come. I mean, they've been snowed out. Even the minister hadn't made it that Sunday. And he writes this, quote, I had heard of the primitive Methodists before, how they sang so loudly they made people's heads ache. <laughs> but that didn't matter to me this morning, <laughs> for I was here because God had led me here. Well, they went through the whole service, and at, very, uh, la- at la- long last, um, they come to the sermon. They have a preacher to preach the sermon, a, a thin-looking man who turns out to be a cobbler, a shoemaker. He's preaching the sermon that day. He opens his Bible without any preparation to Isaiah 45, verse 22, which reads, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Primitive um, shoemaker, and he goes on, This is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. A man needn't go to college to learn to look. You could be the biggest fool in the world, and yet you can look. A man needn't be rich, be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. Ah, but the text says, look unto me. I now, many of you are looking to yourselves. It's no use looking there. The text says, look unto me. You'll never find any comfort in looking to yourselves. Look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look to me, look unto me, look unto me, sweating great drops of blood, look unto me, unto me, hanging on the cross, look unto me, I am dead and buried, look unto me, I rise again, oh poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And then the primitive Methodist cobbler lifted up his hands and Spurgeon says, he looks straight at him, which doesn't surprise me too much because if you're a visitor on Sundays, like normally, especially if there's only 15 people there, the, the, the preacher will pick you out. Right? He looks straight at Spurgeon and he says, he says, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And, um, and Spurgeon says the penny dropped. And that was it. He said, I, I'd heard the gospel hundreds of times before, but for some reason it was that kind of, coincidental silly moment. <laughs> if you talk to Christians, you find that, uh, you know, a lot of our, con- our conversions come at really silly things. You look back on them and you actually say, how in the world did I come to faith through that? Anybody, okay, I'm just curious. Anybody, would you, do, you describe your conversion that way? You look at it now and you're like, how did I come to faith through that? Raise your hand. Come on. Oh, you're completely ruining my, my <laughs> example. Well, I, I mean, honey, Aaron, did you raise your hand? Yes, there's your hand, because I know <laughs> yours, yours was kind of crazy. Yeah, just truly look and live. He said, that was the first time I looked and I lived. The simplicity of faith. So much more could be said about the verses prior to John 3.16. Let's turn our attention to the verses immediately after. 
Verse 17, if you want to read it, look there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's only begotten son. I was reading a Christian author this week. He uh, was um, talking about a moment when he was in grad school. He was talking to some um, friends of his. He, he said, back in graduate school, I was in a conversation with some friends. I think it was in England. They were at a pub. And, he, and one of them asked, just point blank, and I don't know if this ever happened to you, but um, <laughs> it'll, it'll kind of put you on the defensive. They asked, so do you think I'm going to hell? Do you think I'm going to hell? And my immediate re- answer to that was to ask a question back. Well, do you want to? <laughs> like, don't you want to? Because you just told me, even if there was this God, you wouldn't serve him. If this God, the God of the Bible, turns out to be real, you wouldn't want to spend eternity with him. You don't want to be in his presence. Um, If that's the case, then why would he keep you there? Like, why would he lock you in heaven? If God really did give his cherished son as a sacrifice for sin, and you're like, I don't want that guy. You know, it's astounding to contemplate. Some people will refuse. They will refuse the perfect gift of love. They will refuse to welcome Jesus Christ into their lives. The only begotten son who was sent to give them eternal life with the father and the son. And there I think is the connection between God's love and hell. It becomes clear. If you don't want Christ in this life, then why in the world would you want him in the next? If you don't want Christ in this life, why would you want to be locked in a room with him for all of eternity? And he he concluded, he said... Well, I don't think there's anybody in hell who would say, I love this place. Nevertheless, I don't think there's anybody who will be in hell who would, who would say, I'd rather be up there. I'd rather be up there with, with God and Christ. You know, to be condemned in John's vocabulary is to be unforgiven, to be unforgiven of your sin. Um, and unforgiven people are not fit to be in the presence of God because God's presence is a a terror um, in his holiness. Sin is terrified by his holiness. You know, I just want to point out to you, sometimes you hear people say, like, uh, I can't, I just cannot go and believe in a religion that teaches condemnation. And, you know, if, if if it's a religion that teaches condemnation, then it doesn't get my vote, that type of thing. I just want you to notice that you have the biggest verse on the love of God in the Bible juxtaposed in the very next verse with condemnation. Um, like John sees no con- contradiction between the two. And in fact, they are mutually informing. The justice of God and the love of God are mutually informing. We talked about that at other times. I don't have the, have the, the time to do it right now, but... Um, yeah, why would you want to be there? <laughs> Lastly, the, the major theme of the passage, though, is thankfully not condemnation. It, it is love. It is, 
It is an extravagant, extravagant love. And that's where I want to end. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, If you would have asked any Jew in that day, for God so loved Israel that he gave, like every Jew would be, of course, of course, God so loved Israel that that he gave. What they would have been stunned by, what the original readers of the gospel would have not even, like could not comprehend is that God would so love the world, the world. By world, in John's vocabulary, he doesn't mean Hawaiian waterfalls and Grand Canyons and pink sunsets. He means the world of like totality of of sinful humanity. He means a world in rebellion against God. He means a world that will kill the son of God. That God loves sinners from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that he he loves them. That's what was unthinkable to a, a devout Jew in that day. I want you to consider just this moment. What is the greatest love in your life? Or, or um, I'll twist a little bit. What do you think is just the, the greatest type of love that exists uh, on, on the planet today? Well, Rudyard Kipling, the English novelist best known for his children's story, The Jungle Book, uh, Rudyard Kipling wrote poems, and one of the poems that he con- comprised was a reflection on what he thought is the greatest love that exists in humanity. It's entitled Mother O' Mine. And it's a simple reflection on his mother's love for him. A maternal love, arguably a maternal love for her children, is the greatest um, of all loves. If I were hanged on the highest hill, I know whose love would follow me still. If I were drowned in the deepest sea, I know whose tears would come down to me. If I were damned of body and soul, I know whose prayers would make me whole. That's the love of a mother. That's what many of us um, can relate to. You know, love is the best and most beautiful thing about human life. Um, and the love of a mother for her children, I think it surpasses the love of a father for his children, is the greatest and most beautiful. But when you take the time to think about it, when you take the time to think about your love, you realize very quickly that, that we truly love very, very few people, <laughs> right? We, we like truly and really love um, very, very few actual people. We simply don't have the capacity but to love a few. And yet the Bible teaches that God, God doesn't love humanity in mass. He loves particular pers- people personally. Um, he loves individual human beings passionately. And when you stop to contemplate it, like God must have an impossibly great capacity for love to be able to love so many individuals over the, the course of time, over centuries and eons, and to love them in personal and particular ways. Like, that's astounding. And consider this from Rob Brayburn. The reason love is such a big deal in human life, the reason that love is the theme of almost every song and every movie and every great story is because we have been created in the image of God who is love itself. All human love is 
but the effulgence, that is the overflow of God's heart of love. And no human being has ever loved as God loves. Not in, no, not in the finitude of our human life and certainly not in the sinfulness and selfishness of our human life. And no human being, therefore, can really have any grasp of how powerful and great God's love is. For even the strongest love we know on this earth is nothing but a, a pale imitation, a pale, dim imitation of the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen? How does that strike you when I read it? How does that strike you? When I read that, I, I know that I'm, when I hear it, I know that I'm hearing a truth that is vast, that is glorious, and that does not move me. It does not move me the way that it should. Like, I mean, I should read that and like I should be in tears right now. Um, my nose is drooling instead. <laughs> I should be dancing. I should be singing. I should, you know, with something that wonderful. And I think this sometimes happens to us. You, you discover in the Bible something that you know is, is in, impossibly vast and glorious and beautiful. And yet it, it doesn't move you. You know it doesn't move you the way... That it should. To which the only answer I can think of is, is to pray, Lord, make it go deeper. Yeah, make it go deeper. Make it implant in my soul and grow and, and flourish. To conclude, uh, let's do this. Can we all say John 3.16 out loud together? We've probably memorized it in different translations, so that's okay. But... Let's just say it out loud and say it like we mean it because God means it. Like what's so wonderful, God means this verse. He really means it. It's not a slogan. It's not a football sign. Like this is the gospel in miniature. This is the very heart of God. He means this. He means this. All right. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, and one of the ways to make that go deeper is just to uh, emphasize each of those words. You know, during a time of meditation, in the morning, and prayer, you just go through it and you say, for God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave us. And you just take, you, you emphasize each of the words. And when you do that, voila, you, you all, all of a sudden, you try it. Voila, you, you immediately start getting insights into it that you, you won't have if you just run right through the sentence. But that's the gospel in miniature. When it is said that God gave his only son out of love for the world, we are to understand that God gave up something so precious to him that we can scarcely begin to grasp how, how precious it is. That God made that sacrifice, the father made that sacrifice, and the son made that sacrifice for people who were poisoned with sin and discontentment, that whosoever believes, whoever looks, whoever looks, might not perish, might not be condemned, but have eternal life with him. If you have never looked to live, then 
why don't we do that now? Why don't you do that now? Um, why, don't we, why don't we pray this prayer together? Bow your heads with me, please. Lord Jesus Christ, I admit that I am weaker and more sinful and more poisoned than I ever believed. But through you, I am more loved and accepted and cherished than I ever dared hope. I thank you for paying my debt, for bearing my punishment on the cross, and offering forgiveness and eternal life with you. Believing that you have been raised from the dead, I turn from my sin and I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Make me so happy in this good news, in this news of love, that people would mistake my life for a great celebration. Oh, fill me with such joy that I would spill over and refresh all whom I come into contact with. Amen.